Let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. And we'll be looking at verse 7 through verse 12 this morning. I have been uh, preaching on the imperatives, the imperative virtues of the Christian race. And of course, this is the practical application of theology in the book of Hebrews. And so we have been basically examining the marks of the Christian life. This is, this is the, when you endure in the Christian race, this is what the Spirit will produce in your life. And of course, some of those things He will produce found in chapter 13 so far is brotherly love. Secondly, hospitality to those who need it. Simple sympathy for those in trouble. Purity before marriage and after marriage a realistic uh, view of, or realistic contentment, being content with what we possess. And then this morning, this morning we're going to look at the sixth virtue of the Christian life, and that is that of imitatable loyalty. Being loyal. But being loyal to what? In fact, if we just think about it for a moment, what you're loyal to will surely show up in your character and in your manner of living. That's the two places it will show up. What are you loyal to? Uh, scripture points us at where to look for models of loyalty. And it's, it's good that the Lord directs us in this particular place because really loyalty is seen in people and what they do, uh, and how they respond to things. So that's exactly where the Scripture brings us this morning. If you look at verse number 7, it says simply this, the first thing is remember those who led you. Remember those who led you. So we are to be remembering, actually here in Scripture is the commendation of faithful leaders, people who have led you in your Christian walk. We're to remember them. And re the leaders referred to here most likely, of course, is pointing to those past leaders, at least in this church, uh, who led the congregation in earlier days but have now died. Right? They have died and, and uh, they have gone off the scene. And so they're re they're, this congregation is to remember those people who left them examples. You will be able to look to them and find in their life the characteristic of loyalty and be able to follow their example. And that becomes an important admonition and, of course, imperative in this part of the Word of God. In fact, uh, if you notice in verse number 7, it says, Remember those who led you, who spoke the Word of God to you, and consider the result of their conduct. That, that uh, the result, considering the result of their conduct can mean either the end of their life, which most likely it does mean, but also includes the successful outcome and the result of their life. Both are probably in view, especially when considering their steadfast faith to the end and their serene way that these leaders passed from this life. They died, in other words, in faith. They died finishing the race. They were unafraid of death. They were unafraid of the unknown future before them because of the eternal living and changeless Christ whom they followed. Christ is one who you can follow because he doesn't change. They proclaimed his word and they served and kept their eyes fixed on the Lord. Now, in considering them, what are you to consider about people and all of us can remember and point out and uh, bring to mind people that have been very influential in our life as far as exemplifying the Christian virtues that we want in our own life and so but here in scripture the Bible does tell us that they led in really three ways that are very important for our, our own 
lives to say, well, listen, I want to lead like this. I want to be an example like this. And the first one in verse number seven is this, that you're to remember those who led you. And for, for what reason? How did they lead? By what they preached. They spoke the word of God to you. In other words, in their life, in their leadership, there was a primacy of God's word. And of course, if someone has the word of God as something primary in their life, then that means that they are going to preach Christ alone, that the task of real preaching is to remove oneself until Christ uh, is the only one showing in your life. It's not about you, like the quote we read. It's not about what you're doing or what you're about or your, or your giftedness. Really, it's about Christ. And so... That is the characteristic of them speaking the word of God to them, that the word of God was primary in what they said. And then also, that includes also preaching Christ or preaching Scripture alone, that this person is growing to have a grasp on the content, even the basic content, and the uh, of Scripture and the doctrine of Scripture. They're growing in that, like Paul told. Titus, wrote in Titus, uh, holding fast the faithful word, all right, which is in accordance with teaching, so that you will be able to both to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. In other words, the person sticks to the word of God, not his own opinion, not his own notions, nothing else. He gives himself to God's word so not only does he himself or herself hold on to it but it's a model for other people to say listen I want to be like him I want to be like her who lives their life and holds to the word of God but there's a, a, a something else that goes with that that he learns to accurately handle God's word in Timothy it's t- it tells us to be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. This is the next thing that goes along with that, that a person begins to accurately handle God's word. That's, that's their passion, not to mess it up, to get it right, not to manipulate it, but to get it in its pure form, in its unadulterated form. And of course... A motive, too, would be that they preach the full counsel of God, that an elder is responsible for feeding his flock by declaring to them the whole purpose of God. In the book of Acts, it says, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. God has, the Bible's a big book from Genesis to Revelation, and there's a lot to learn in it. So we really don't have time to waste on all kinds of other things. We ought to be learning God's word, but it also led them to a second thing that was part of their leadership, and that's they they led people by not only what they spoke, but how they actually lived. You can know the word of God, you can know things about the word of God, and not live the word of God. But here it's saying, listen, they lived the word of God. Because he is saying in verse number 7 that you are to remember them, but notice that you are to consider the result of their conduct. You're to, con- you're to think about them, whoever was an example in your life spiritually, and you are to think about not only what they said, but how they lived. That the primacy of the Word of God affected their living changed them right in front of you. So the term here in verse 7, considering the result of their conduct, really means to look back and examine carefully uh, how they lived by faith. It means to scan closely their lives. And of course, the Bible is also admonishing us that we would be that model, that we would be that example of the primacy of the Word of God in our words and in our lifestyle. Can someone look at you and scan your life under a microscope 
and say, wow, that person, uh, man, the word of God's important to them. And what God says in the word of God, they do. That's what he's saying here. He's saying, listen, examine closely their manner of life. And once you do that, once you examine them, what are you to do? Not just leave it there. He says something else about them in verse number 7 of Hebrews 13. He says, listen, once you look at how they speak and what they speak, and once you examine carefully their manner of life, then look at verse 7, the end of verse 7. Imitate their faith. Be like them. We learn a lot by observation. We can look at someone's life, and we can pretty much know what they're about. It doesn't very, take very long to figure that out. What are their passions? What are their desires? What are their long-term goals? You know, and, and look at that. You know, if, if God is not included in their goals and their passions and their desires, then there's something wrong. You don't want to emulate someone like that. You want to emulate someone who has the word of God as first and foremost in their life and really takes it serious and wants to live it. They're serious about Christ. They're serious about what God says. And so you want to ask yourself, and some people do, is, is it, can we really follow people? Well, yes. In fact, that's what the Bible is saying right here in Scripture, that we can imitate them. It, it's the very Greek word is, is to be a mimic to someone who wants to be like another. They look at their life and say, I want to be like that person. See, believers should mimic their teachers as their teachers mimic Christ. And so this should really bring to our attention that all elders and deacons and their wives and leaders and teachers and Sunday school teachers and worship leaders, in fact, all who name the name of Jesus, parents, are to personally model the gospel before the eyes of others. That is the motive. That's the goal. Not to just have your head filled with knowledge, but to have your heart affected by the knowledge that God's showing you to the point where your desire when you leave the house is to be a model for Christ. See, that's part of the endurance that we're called to when we're to endure by faith. So when we follow after Christ, we in turn become models of people inside the church and outside the church. A lot of times the gospel that you're going to be preaching first before people is not with your mouth. It's with your life. It's how you respond in circumstances and situations wherever you go. And so therefore when you live like that, then see that becomes a very powerful picture for people around you. In fact, to the point where your kids should want to grow up and say, I want to be like mom and dad. All right? not, maybe not in every area, because they're not perfect, uh, but especially in the area of their passion for the Lord, their passion for the Word of God, that they have held to the truth. So this should be a sober reminder for all of us that the image of Jesus in us, that is, the way we model Him, is what attracts people. And finally, gives you the opportunity to open your mouth to be able to tell them the truth of the gospel so they can be saved. So will someone say about you, I want to be like you? Is there anybody, anybody who's going to say that about you? Or about me? That I want to be like you? It was the Apostle Paul who in 1 Thessalonians chapter 6, if you'd like to turn there very quickly, because he kind of backs this up and he adds to those additional things that we are to model. And what are those? Remember, love, hospitality, sympathy, purity, contentment, loyalty. And he says in 1 Thessalonians 1.6, 
you also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with joy of the Holy Spirit. So he is saying there, listen, you Thessalonians, and who were they? They were idolaters, right? And they heard the word of God, they became believers, and their testimony rang throughout all the territory. And he says, listen, you became imitators of us and of Christ. Why? Because we were following Christ, and as we followed Christ, the Spirit of God did a work on us, and we became So therefore, you were able to follow us, and therefore the process goes down. You're being sanctified, so you become a model of what it is to be a believer, what it is to be a real Christian. So he is saying in... And then he picks that same thing up in 2 Thessalonians, well turned there, and he comes up with these model characteristics of, of a godly life. And he says the first one is discipline. And he says, for you yourselves know that how we ought to follow you, ought to follow our examples, that we did not act in an undisciplined manner. That they were disciplined in what? In godliness. In the seriousness of the word of God. And then in 2 Thessalonians 3.8, he says, and we emulated hard work. And he's talking about there going to work. The work of the gospel right there. He's talking about people who actually go to work and do manual labor, and at work, what are they? They are a model of Christ. And then he goes on to say uh, to us in that passage, and we did not eat anyone's bread without paying for it but we but with labor and hardship kept working night and day why so we wouldn't be a burden to anybody we did our job and so when they did their job you know we're we're to work for our earthly bosses as unto christ that's that's a principle all through scripture and that means our attitudes and standards are different than the world's than they used to be even on our job, even jobs that we really down, deep down, really don't like. But if you get up and you go to work and say, today, I'm going to model Christ on my job, I think it would change the way you do your job. I think it would change the attitude in which you do your job. I think it's a good attitude, and it's going to be a model attitude for all of us to be able to work that way. And of course, Paul added another thing. He says, I want to emulate purpose too. And the purpose was that I don't want to be a burden to anybody. I want to be able to work with my hands so I can proclaim the gospel to you later. So he had a self-denying love in ministering to his recipients. And of course, all honest labor is honorable. And so that's part of being a model. And then, of course, he finally said in 2 Thessalonians 3.9, I want to emulate an unselfish, devoted sacrifice to you. He said, not because we did not have the right to do this, but in order to offer ourselves a model. Offer ourselves a model for you so that you would follow our example. So he, even those people that he worked around who were not a believers, all right, he said, I want to be a model to you. So maybe someday you may follow our example in following Christ. So, see, we are to be mimics of those who were models before us. You know, and if I was sitting there thinking in my mind, who's been a model to me since I've been a believer? I came from a family that I didn't, I didn't come from a Christian family. I had nobody in my family that were Christians. And so when I became a believer, I was like, wow, I'm all alone out here. I don't know who to talk to. And I, this is when I didn't understand the church. I didn't understand where to go. I didn't understand what to look for. Nobody was telling me anything. And so I was just like out there. And along the way, the Spirit of God got a hold of me through the Word of God, and I began to meet people who were serious about the Lord. This one particular person named Terry Wright, he was a fellow Marine with me. He uh, began to discern that I wasn't a believer. And, and I looked at his life. I looked at his family. I said, wow, I'd like to be like him someday. And I found out later, of course, he was a Christian. He began to take me to church, and I began to learn the Word of God. And so, in a sense, him and his wife were the only Christians I knew. 
So they, and thank the Lord, they were a good model. And they were uh, serious about going to church. They were serious about the Word of God. They were serious about God's uh, serving the Lord. And so th- that became something that I wanted to be like. And uh, they had a great family, and, and they, they had a lot of joy in their life. And so that was, that was a model for me. And then, of course, uh, after that, I began to grow, and there was a guy named Elijah. He was the same way. And then when I went to college, uh, there was Dr. Baker and Dr. Olson and Dr. Beek and Dr. Anderson, and there was pastors, and there were people in the congregation, uh, and then there were uh, biographies that I read of uh, Charles Spurgeon and Martin Lloyd-Jones and uh, on and on they went and these people became models. You read a biography about a missionary going someplace and sharing the gospel and spending their whole life there and all these tragedies are happening and they just stuck it out to the end and they're still praising and glorifying God. They say, I want to be like that. Even though I may not go there and do what they did, I want to be like that. Lord, make me like that. And you begin to pray, Lord, make me like that. And see, so all of us, not, you're not, and God's not done sending models into our life. Matter of fact, many of you are models to me. I've learned from the congregation. I learned from people, uh, from looking at their life and looking at their family and looking at their passions and what the Lord's doing in their life. And I'm learning from you. And I'm saying, man, this person has a gift in that area. And I, man, I, I want to I do that. You know, how could they do that? And I want to be like them in, in that particular way. So, see, that's what the Lord is doing, that our leaders are examples. But, you see, you're a leader. In some way, you're a leader, and therefore, you're to endure so you can grab the models that God's sending your way and begin to implement those characteristics, the Spirit of God's developing in them and you, and put them in your life. But see, this is the big problem. People die. Our models die. See, we humans appear for a little while. We laugh, we weep, we work, we play, and we're gone. And sometimes we hold on to our models so much we depend on them and not God. Sometimes that happens. So what does the word of God say to us next in Hebrews chapter 13? It says this. They not only led by a primacy of the word of God and holding the word of God true, they led by their lifestyle, their manner of living. Here's a third way they led by in verse number 8. Look what it says. And Jesus Christ, maybe the most famous verse in the book of Hebrews, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So how did they lead? They led by whom they fixed their gaze upon. That's how they led. That's where their sticking to the Word of God led them to living out the Word of God, led them to keeping their eyes on the only one who doesn't change. Because we are, our souls long for something unchangeable. I don't know about you, as you get older, it's hard to change. It's hard to take change. In fact, you, you wrestle a lot of things changing. People growing older, people you knew who are not there anymore, they die and they pass from you. And that's, it's a struggle. And yet the Bible is saying here, wait a minute, Keep your eyes on Jesus because Jesus is the same. He never changes. Matter of fact, this has been a theme that the writer of Hebrews has been speaking of all along from the beginning. In fact, if you'd like to take your Bibles there, uh, in Hebrews chapter 1, he already told us that Jesus was of this character And he says in chapter 1, verse 10, he says, number one, that Jesus is represented as the creator of all things, where he says in verse 10, And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. So see, he's establishing that Jesus is 
the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He always was and always is, and He's the same. All right, here, Jesus is the agent in whom and through whom the entire universe of space and time was created, that Jesus created every speck of dust in the 100,000 million galaxies and he also created every sub-microcosmic system that has no measurable size. He created it all, seen and unseen. In other words, the creation of all things is distinctly ascribed to the Son. Second thing in chapter 1, verse 11 and 12, that the Son is the, is the author, where he says in verse 11, and they will perish but you remain and they all will become old like a garment and like a mantle you will roll them up like a garment they will also be changed so see in other words the point is that amid all the changes that will take place the lord creates and the lord destroys what he creates among all the changes that will take place the sun remains unchanged the sun remains unchangeable. So he who is before time and creation will be the same after the heaven and earth perish. Remember, the, when we come to Zion, it's going to be Christ who is there, the, chain, the one who doesn't change, he will be there. So this should be for those who know the Lord and know why they were brought along in this Christian race and in their Christian life it should bring us great encouragement uh, to an ever-changing, falling-apart world that we live in, that he is the changeless one, because in Hebrews 1.12, what he says there, but you are the same. You are the same. So he's actually expanding on what he taught right at the beginning, that you may not realize this, but I think it's a very comforting thing to know that God, who has created the heaven and the earth, who has given us his word, who has authored salvation, is not going to change direction on us or change his plan or change his promises on how one can be made right with him and how one stays right with him and how one will be offered and enter into the kingdom of God. I like when Paul said in Romans, for there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches to all who call on him. See, so I can go preach the gospel to anybody, and it's the same Lord. We're not talking about two different things, two different persons going on. No, he is the same. And then he says this, that the Son represents the eternal one in Hebrews 11, uh, excuse me, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 11 and 12, he says, and they will perish, but you remain, and your years will not come to an end. So Jesus, the Son, is the eternal, independent being presented in Scripture, and he needs no one. He was in the beginning when neither man nor angel nor creature of any kind existed. And when there was nothing but God in the universe, nothing but the triune Godhead in the universe, when all was God. It says in Hebrews 13, 8, that Jesus is the same, but it says it like this. Yesterday, today, and forever. Isn't there a yesterday? And isn't there a today? And isn't there a forever? That yesterday in history, he died for his children as a unique, one-time, eternal sacrifice. Today, what is he doing? He is the forerunner. In other words, he has already entered heaven and is now interceding on God's right hand. For who? For us. He's our high priest before the Father. He, he, we bring before Him our needs and He helps us and gives us grace in time of need. That's what He does. Be, that's what He's doing today. But there's a forever. He's eternal. That 
we need not fear changing times or changing bodies or changing feelings or changing circumstances because Jesus, in his word, does not change and what he has promised, he will accomplish. See, that gives me and you great stability, great security. That Hebrews from chapter 1 to the last verse is Christocentric. Christ is the center. He is the same. He, His help, His grace, His power are permanently at His people's disposal. And this all means that His character, His word, and His plan will not change so that He can, he can be followed, He can be trusted in all He says and all he does, and it will be accomplished. Actually, he's quoting from chapter 1 in Psalm 102, uh, where it says, Of old you founded the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. Even they will perish, but you endure. And all of them wear out like a garment, like clothing you change. And they will be changed. But you are the same. Your ways will not come to an end. To me and to you, that becomes greatly a great foundation, a great security, a great doctrine that we can lean upon and rest upon. That God's not going to change in this ever-changing world, he's not going to make a left turn where we can't follow him. Right? That's who he is. I mean, and so that becomes a verse here that leads us into the next passage of Hebrews chapter 13, and it's this. And we can't forget this. I want, I want you to remember this, that it, this is set between verse number 8 is set between verse number, of course, 7 and 9, but in verse number 8, uh, verse number 7, it was the commendation of faithful leaders. In verse number 9, it's the condemnation of false teachers. See, so that means that if all those things, models of the Christian life, who, who stick to the Word of God, who stick to the supremacy of Christ, and now... If you live your life like that, then you will have stability. If you rest and fix your eyes on Christ, you will have stability. But it will also keep you from false teaching. It will also help you to recognize false teaching. In fact, as soon as you move away from the Word of God, as soon as you move away from the centrality of Jesus Christ, you're already floating downstream the wrong way. All right, Look at verse number 9. This is what it says. And here's the condemnation of false teachers. It says, do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings. So right there in the context, it's saying, saying to us, listen, there's a danger here that some Christians have stopped listening. Some Christians have stopped following their faithful leaders as models and they have taken their eyes off of Jesus, the one who remains the same. Instead, they start to develop itching ears, accumulating teachers after their own liking, like Paul told Timothy when he said that people will not endure sound doctrine, will, but will go after teaching that soothes their ears, tickles their ears, itches their ears. They like to hear it, in other words. And people become apathetic to the Word of God. They may think that it's not important anymore. Even Charles Haddon Spurgeon in the 1800s wrote this, Everywhere there's apathy. Nobody cares whether that which is preached is true or false. A sermon is a sermon. Whatever the subject, only the shorter it is, the better. That was the late 1800s. That's when there was before all this media stuff, before there was TV, before there was anything like that. 
I mean, all the distractions today, we can add to that quote, right? But it's true today that if you you get away from the Word of God, you are already, matter of fact, actually the word means here that to be carried away means to float away like a river. It means uh, to be misled by false teaching. All right, when, when does that happen? When does a person get lit? When is a person vulnerable to be misled by false teaching? When the Word of God is set aside, all right, and is no longer primary, and when Christ is no longer supreme. They go together. You, you can't pull them apart. You can't separate Christ from His Word or the Word of God from Christ. They are a package. So, don't be carried away by, and he uses two words here, by varied and strange teachings. Varied teachings could be deviations from the truth not based on the teaching of Scripture. Right, something that sounds good, something that may be even motivating and encouraging and funny. But it's not, God, not God's Word. And then strange teaching could be just the unbiblical, distorted teaching that did not even sound like the teaching of Scripture, but... People floated so far away from the truth that they couldn't discern what good and evil was anymore. And so therefore, anything that they needed in their life that someone could address by way of a message, that's what they would hook onto. See, so the teaching of men who do not have as their source the Word of God must have some source to inform their teaching. Right? And of course, it could be their own mind. Some people have very creative minds. It could be the current philosophies of the day. I mean, there's a lot of stuff flying around out there. there. And it could be also even the doctrines of demons. Remember, the doctrines of demons slip right in when the Word of God is not the thing that is our standard and our measuring rod for everything we, we believe. So these teachings are ever-changing and morphing. They're Whatever you want, that's the way we'll design it. We'll make a package just for you. And that's what happens. So these teachings people want, and at certain, maybe at a certain moment of time, but none of them makes anyone spiritually strong. None of them makes anyone spiritually strong strong so in our day there is much to discern concerning different philosophies and teachings in fact biblical preaching cannot be geared towards toward meeting felt needs it it can't be geared towards solving psychological problems or amusing the audience or making people feel good about themselves or any kind of hollow fads that fly in and out of the church and in and out of our lives from time to time in this entertainment-oriented culture in which we live. There's plenty of stuff going on like this. But biblical preaching must uphold the truth of God and demand that it is heeded, demand that it is obeyed. One person says, This promised people a religion that will allow them to be comfortable in their materialism and self-love, and they will respond in droves. If you have been reading through the one-year Bible, you just got done with Jeremiah. I've been talking about Jeremiah, but in Jeremiah, God told him this. During his day when he was preaching, this is what God said to Jeremiah. He says, an appalling, horrible thing has happened in the land. What can be so appalling and horrible? That the prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule on their own authority and the people love it. See, that's an appalling and that is a horrible thing that happens when there is a famine in the land and people are getting false messages from those speaking and they love it. See, that's dangerous. And only those who hold to the primacy of the Word of God and to the supremacy of Christ are the ones who can discern 
what's going on so you don't get led astray so you don't get into this stream of water going in the wrong direction you want to go in the right direction now getting back to our passage in verse number nine he does refer to a specific thing concerning the jews but it's something that uh we do also look at verse number nine it says well it says do not be carried away by varied and strange teaching for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace but look at the last part not by foods through which those who were so occupied were not benefited in other words here he references foods probably in the first century the false teachers were carried about by their strange teachings concerning dietary restrictions you notice how many religious systems have something to do with some kind of restriction to food or something that you do or don't do well here food restrictions and food laws one kind of or another whether it's food or drink or various ceremonial washings or external regulations, whatever it may be they were using those particular things for number one to think it's going to benefit them spiritually and grow them in their faith or maybe even bring them to a place where they think god's pleased with it and gives them an opportunity to say lord look what i've done i didn't eat this particular food that i wasn't supposed to eat and i know that pleases you when it doesn't when God says already in Scripture, I made all things clean, right? Eat anything you want. And so now we have this, uh, well, look at verse number 9. And those who did those things uh, were so occupied by them, but were not benefited. In other words, those who were led astray by this teaching and embraced it absorbed no lasting spiritual benefit from it at all. In fact, the varied and strange teaching was spiritually worthless to them. It's worthless. And a lot of stuff people think is spiritual and religious is worthless. Matter of fact, it damns their soul and doesn't make them ready for Christ or heaven. And it happens. But I tell you what, slide away from the Word of God and all these things pop up. Oh, I should be doing this. And I got my list of ten things to do and not do. These are, this is what a Christian does. This is what a Christian doesn't do. Because you're not supposed to eat that. You're not supposed to go there. Blah, blah, blah. You know, the list goes on and on and on and on. So, so what is right? What and proper in regard to nourishing the soul? Well, according to Scripture, look back at verse number 9. Right smack in the middle of the verse, it says this. It says, For it is good for your heart to be strengthened by grace. What were you saved by? You were saved by grace. Well, what are you sustained by? grace god's unmerited favor unchanging favor to you every single day from the day you became a believer to the for, to the day you die you know what you need and what i need i need strengthening grace it is god's grace where it's going to strengthen my heart and of course my heart remember the the renewed heart that god gives me in the new covenant is a heart it, the seat of human personality is the heart and has a particular reference in hebrews to attitudes and conduct in this last part so if you're going to be made firm in your heart if you're going to be established in your heart you must be established in the word of god and in the supremacy of christ and in staying there you will be made stronger and firmer by divine grace that it's available to you every single waking and sleeping moment of your life it is available to you that's how you get strengthened and what is that grace well the grace comes right from the word right from obeying the spirit from doing what the scripture simply says to do working in what god's working out see the heart that is continuing to grow firm in grace that can't be moved by every wind of doctrine that's flowing flying around out there they can't be moved by that because they what they they hold fast to their confession hebrews chapter 10 right they approach god boldly they're praying hebrews chapter 4 and 10 and they're willing to bear the reproach of christ they realized when they took up the cross of christ that friends may fail them and leave them families may members may leave them things may change that are negative 
to their profession of Christ. But you know what? They are willing to bear that reproach because of the truth. And that God would work it out according to His will somehow, but I am not leaving this truth no matter what. So Hebrews has already emphatically stated that the law brought nothing to completion. The law brought nothing to perfection. Nothing at all. So the So that means that Jewish regulations here about food are not beneficial whatsoever. It also means that any kind of food regulation or any kind of external regulations have been for all time surpassed and outmoded by the work of Christ. So that when we're in Christ, we are free from all rules. We are free from all kind of weird regulations. We're free. Go do what you want in the sense of obeying Christ. I am free to serve Christ. I am free as a slave of Christ. So therefore, legalism, even little rules that we have, impede grace. They do not help grace. We can't help grace. You understand that? There's nothing that we can do to help it. See, It is grace which strengthens the believer's heart. Not subscriptions to rules or to the avoidance of prohibited foods or whatever you want else you want to put on there. See, there's no more room for material sacrifices in Hebrews or animal offerings or sacred meals or hallowed altars. All this is over and gone because of the one-time sacrifice of Jesus Christ when He ended all the pictures and the shadows and the types and He fulfilled it all. All we need is the supremacy of Christ. That's all that we need. But who does grace actually go to what does following the word of god and making it primary and having christ supreme where does it lead to in your heart well let me just remind you of this and it was peter who told the church you young men likewise be subject to your elders and all of you Clothe yourself with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, right? And then what does he do? He gives grace to who? The humble. He gives grace to the humble. In other words, in this passage of Scripture, it's the person who grows in humility to God's Word and to the supremacy of Christ in their life where they said, Lord... There is nowhere else to look or go to for not only my salvation, but for your sanctifying grace. So I'm just going to stick with you. And so I'm going to humble myself under your word, and I know that when I do so, grace is available to the humble. Not to the person who says, wait a minute, I think food regulations, or I think that this particular list of things should be accomplished first in my life or in my heart or in my mind so I can become more holy. No. The person says that's all gone. See, Christians instead are to give central importance to the one great aspect of their faith. And what is that? Christ died for them. He was sacrificed for us and shed not the blood of bulls and goats, but His own blood. So hence, we have a sacrifice which some cannot enter into. Some cannot enter into the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the true nourishment for all believers. Not every single day of our life, but He is also something else. Jesus Christ alone is our one-time access to God. If you try to add to Him, or add to the truth of the gospel, then you are actually undermining what God has already established as how someone actually has access to God. In fact, look at Hebrews 3.10. It says, and we have an altar. We have an altar. 
right? This is kind of strange language to us, but he's get, making a point here. He says in Hebrews 13.10, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. See, those who serve the tabernacle, or in your translations, it, it may say tent, are those who wish to remain under the old covenant. So the emphasis is, is that if you want to stay within the narrow confines of your works-based religious system, and believe me, religious systems are very narrow and very comfortable. Christianity is not narrow in the sense of the things that we need to learn. It is, of course, narrow in that it's a narrow road. But here he is saying, listen, if you want to stay in the confines of your own religious-based, works-based religious systems like Judaism, which he's referring to, or Roman Catholicism, or Mormonism, or Islam, and the list goes on, you can derive no benefit from the only sacrifice which really matters and therefore cannot share in the great sin offering of all time, and that is the sacrifice of Christ. You have no right to eat at the altar, and the altar is being referred to as Christ himself, and the one who was sacrificed on the altar is Christ himself. So therefore, such people have no right to eat the eternally satisfying provisions of the new covenant, if you have your own way, not only to be saved, but to continue to live for God. You actually forfeit the truth of God's word. So see, in scripture here, the sacrificial imagery he's using in verse number 10, actually to verse number 12, brings to mind the sin offering on the Day of Atonement. And remember, under the Old Covenant, the priests were entitled to use the sacrificial animals as food after they had been offered. That that happened in most sacrifices, that at the end of the sacrifices, the, the priests were given the food to eat, except that did not apply to the sin offering and to the Day of Atonement. See, on those occasions... The sacrifice was burnt in its entirety. Now look at verse number 11. It says, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. In other words, the carcasses of those animals were not given to the priest to eat as part of the sacrifice, but they were actually taken outside the camp outside the city and burned why because they were defiling because christ took the sin of the world on him because the atonement had to do with his shed blood and the washing away of sin so see those carcasses were going to be burned completely so all the offering was presented to god and none was available to the ministering priest so in verse number 12 he concludes this therefore jesus also that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. To a ministering priest, they did not go outside the gate. See, Jesus' death outside the gate means he is accessible to anyone in the world who will come to him not just to the Jews, not just to a little religious group. See, see, those under the old sacrificial system could not partake of the great offering as a meal because that was not the intention. The intention was that Christ was going to take the load of the sin of the world, making the offer of the gospel available to all peoples of all time. But he is not accessible to the self-righteous. He is not accessible to those who have their own system of salvation and sanctification. He's not accessible to them. They cannot eat at his altar. What can we do then? Well, a humble person does this. 
what do you want me to do, Lord? What do you want me to do? He answers that question in verse number 13. Look what he says. So what remains for a sinner to do? Go to him. It says, so let us go out to him outside the camp bearing his reproach. See, somebody who comes to Christ will bear his reproach. To, to the Jew, bearing his reproach means giving every, everyone and everything up to go forth after Christ. I'm going to give up my rules, my regulations, my Judaism, my religion, and I'm going to follow Christ. You give up everything. That's what it meant. Because when, you, when a Jew followed Christ, he was giving up everything. He gave up his spot in the synagogue. He gave up his spot in the community. He often, many times, lost his job and was ostracized by his whole family. So the reproach was great. I wish, wish that we would get a handle on the reproach that we, we do enter into when we come to Christ. But whatever happens in your life, whatever comes into your life that is something that opposes you because of your faith is a reproach. It is something against you because you're a believer. You don't give up everything you know about salvation because that happens. No, you enter in to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and you give everyone and everything up to go after Christ and you don't look back when you do it. See, that person has a right to eat. That person realizes that our food, our drink, our life is Christ and Christ alone. And no one is going to take that from me or you. See, that's when you grow firm in your heart. Will you, that's the way you'll stand. That's how you'll, you'll think of things. And you know what? You will be, of course, blessed because of it. You will grow stronger because of it. So, in the end, once I hold to the primacy of the Word of God, and I have the models in my life to see how people have run the race and finish the race and that they've kept the supremacy of Christ as a fixed object in their goal and what does it lead them to it leads them to a place in which they can share in the great sin offering of all time the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and they can feed on the Lord and his word until the day he takes us to be with him forever. That our nourishment is Christ and our access to God is the sacrifice of Christ, period. I need nothing else to help that along. Amen? I pray that that would be our prayer as a church, as a body, as a people, that we would continue to serve and grow in these things, some deep theology uh, and significant theology here for you and I, but nonetheless, it is what is going to cause us to endure the race and finish like those before us, right? Nothing like being at a funeral and preaching a funeral of someone who's lived a faithful Christian life. That's why it can be a celebration. Why? He's really gone through the door of death right into the presence of God. Man, you can't celebrate... You can't really celebrate more than that. In fact, look what he says in, in Hebrews, while well, I'll not expand on it, but look what he says in verse number 14. For here we do not have a lasting city, for we are seeking sitting which is to come. There it is, right? We are seeking a city which is to come. How do we get there? You keep the word of God primary and Christ supreme, and you will be there. And you will be there as a model to those who follow along and enter into heaven right behind you. Maybe a little bit later on, but they're going to enter in right behind you. Why? Because you were faithful, you endured the race, and you finished. You finished. Can you say that? Is that your goal? Is that your desire? Finish as a model believer. I pray it would be. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for the tremendous knowledge and insight in the word of god i pray lord that 
every one of us who hear this morning would be encouraged by it, would be strengthened by it, and even, Lord, in some ways be rebuked by it. But, Lord, take the word of God and build us up with it. So, Lord, every one of us who name the name of Christ can be someone who is imitatably loyal to the word of God, to the supremacy of Christ, to the one-time sacrifice on our behalf. So, Lord, we can live in a way that others may follow us because we know where we're going and we're heading into the very kingdom of God. We praise you, Lord, for what you'll do. And we want to lift up your name of, to sing now and worship. In Christ I pray. Amen. Let's stand together.